The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. The the psychological psychiatric realm is um is kind of it's a messy realm of of understanding suffering uh, in these ways. Um, psychiatric conditions themselves are um, it's kind of messy, yeah. So with other diseases, the focus is on pathophysiology and you know we don't we don't um talk about covid as the scratchy throat disease right um we talk about it as uh it's a beta coronavirus and it uh attaches to these receptors and these these inflammatory effects and this whatever dysregulated immune response and um, in the psychiatric realm, we are more talking about signs and symptoms, you know, scratchy throat disease. And it's too much to get into, but it like even just the category of something like depression hides an incredible amount of heterogeneity, you know, what that is, like that, that is a marker for understanding um, is not not really sufficient, even though there's a lot of utility in having that the diagnostic category. And this is a realm characterized of of, of psychiatric distress characterized by um, equifinality, meaning many many paths leading to the same outcome. Yeah, we can get to the same place through many different routes. And multifinality, the same risk factor can lead um, to very different outcomes. Yeah. Um, we see that at the genetic level, okay, um, I think it's pleiotropic effects where it's like, yeah, the same genetic risk factors can manifest in very different ways. And um, we see a high degree of... Um, of of polygenicity, so it's like many many genetic variations of very small effects, you know, cumulatively being meaningful in in uh, in psychiatric conditions, and the the causal map, as you can hear, is quite complex. And so, let me just just as a kind of illustration. Um, yeah, here is the the kind of the causal map, the different factors that are um, in a in a twin study. So it's an attempt to kind of disentangle genetic and environmental risk for depression. Yeah, and I show this not so you can absorb it, but so you can be intimidated by it. Yeah. And you see all of the different pathways, the childhood, the, the kind of early adolescence, the late adolescence, the adulthood, the last year, and then all in, in understanding the depressive, ep uh, the occurrence of a depressive episode in the past year. 
and you see that they're the lines go from not just from one thing to another it's like they go all over the place they're amplifying or minimizing the effects of other risk factors right and so um monocausal theories like this one risk factor this trauma caused this like it's it's always way more complicated right and so we could call that diagram paticca samuppada you know we could call it like this is dependent origination this is like the complexity that we see in these realms is a testament to the complexity of causality itself so um this has implications for how we think about treatment and healing and these things and one of the effects is that it it has it has moved moved uh, us away from a kind of purely dsm based um treatment approach so so um the the kind of psychiatric nosology of whatever 200 odd you know clinical conditions um a couple researchers said the era of protocols for syndromes is over yeah the era of like if you have depression you get this this protocol this treatment if you have generalized anxiety disorder you get this thing that that's still true to some extent and that's not a bad thing but the question is a little bit more is moving towards the focus on core psychopathological processes yeah understanding the mechanisms that promote or maintain psychiatric distress it's a movement i would say away from just ev- you know strictly evidence based treatments to what what one of my teachers called like um empirically supported principles of change empirically supported principles of change so it's less about these kind of trademarked approaches and you know um of well like i gave the example dbt earlier or whatever it's like no no what what is actually shared across you know psychosocial treatments uh what are what are empirically supported principles of change in uh you know some some um some drugs are known for being highly uh selective so the idea of like uh SSRI like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor like the idea is it's the drug is supposed to be selective it's supposed to hit some receptors and not others yeah and no drug is perfectly receptive but some are more receptive i think selexa for example is like uh more highly selective yeah drug and um and then there are drugs that are not that are they're sometimes called like dirty drugs yeah dirty drugs they hit a range of different receptor systems and um um and i would say the dharma is a dirty drug 
Yeah. Just to use that as a kind of metaphor, the Dharma is a dirty drug. Um, it, who knows what it, you know, at the level of the brain, of course, that's being investigated, but I'm using it in a figurative sense, meaning the Dharma has elements of many different therapeutic approaches, the range of mechanisms of action, again, to borrow language from uh, more, you know, pharmacology language, like, like the mechanism of action is multiple in the Dharma. Right. And what I would say is um, the Dharma is um, it has overlap with, with at least these and, and we could say more. So it has overlap with attentional training it has overlap with uh, cognitive therapy. It has overlap, deep overlap with exposure therapy. It is evokes uh, existential therapy in some really important ways. So let, let me unpack this. So disrupted attention. Attention is a kind of unifying construct in in psychology and um and attention attention is disrupted across a wide range of psychiatric conditions so and in different ways so in addiction for example there is attentional bias to drug cues yeah in obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress, like there is um, often intrusive thinking, unbidden thoughts that sort of just uh, are, are disruptive. They, they are intrusive. Um, in generalized anxiety disorder, there's, we are entangled in worry and the failure to, to, manage the worrying process um the the attention moves into the realm of you know threat amorphous sense of threat in depression there there are a number of attentional effects so there's concentration problems there are memory effects there's um you know over general autobiographical recall like uh, uh, a, a number there's attentional bias to negative information yeah there there's a number of of attentional kinds of components to depressive phenomenology attention deficit hyperactivity disorder like right there in the the um, the diagnostic label is attention and and even in subclinical distress okay we don't meet criteria for a clinical condition but just think about like moments of real distress for you the attention there is a kind of pinball effect of the attention it's moving from past to future to uh, you know, kind of unpleasantness in the, the affective systems in the body. And then that sort of springs us into narratives and autobiographical storytelling and 
the attention is not stabilized in distress, you know? And so how to think about this? Is this maybe just epiphenomenal, meaning that the attention disruption is not so important? That's possible. And maybe that's just the the steam coming off the engine of psychiatric illness. But it may be worth exploring this attentional training, you know, if we if we learn as we do learn to stabilize attention, to bring some measure of um, of of kind of um, even small bits of samadhi, of concentration, of of tranquilizing the the kind of inner field of experience. Maybe this is useful. Maybe this is useful um, for the forms of distress. Dharma is a cognitive therapy. It's a cognitive therapy. You know, a lot of um, what the Buddha does is tell us how to think. This is not a popular trope, you know, exactly. We sort of try to hide the rhetorical gestures of the Dharma behind the claims that it's self-evident. You know, just see for yourself, hey, Pasiko, you know. But it's not, it's not. We're being told what to think a lot, a lot. Right view is the foundation, right? This is the foundation. With wrong view, what follows? Wrong intention, wrong speech, wrong action, wrong mindfulness, wrong everything. Right view. Ah, dukkha is like this. We're being invited into um, ways of understanding that reduce suffering. And it's really, um, it's quite foundational. And a lot of what Dharma teaching is, is a kind of invitation to new ways of seeing, new ways of construing experience in the clinical literature, you would call it cognitive reappraisal. Yeah. So in the, in, in the contrast between mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, that's sort of like very highly derivative from MBSR uh, along with, you know, that sort of, um, graphs in, uh, uh, you know, cognitive therapy. And it was originally designed as a, as a treatment to prevent the relapse into depression. Depression is a chronic relapsing condition. And okay, in remitted, remitted cases, like um, how do you sustain that well-being, right? And so mindfulness-based cognitive therapy was an attempt to become mindful of depression early depressogenic thinking, yeah? So with that kind of kindling function before we're actually um, actually in, um, in a depressive episode, we are, um, we are, yeah, we're, there's kind of some, some lead up to that, right? And MBCT, was an attempt to, um, you know, was an attempt to 
minimize the threat of that early depressogenic thinking by knowing thought as thought. That's familiar to all of you, right? It's like not disputing the contents of that thought, right? Of like, oh, this, this, uh, this day, this day is going terribly. Like, uh, you know, like you're really, you're just leaving out so much, Matthew, and you're like really effing this up. And like, okay, that's a thought arising in my mind. Yeah. Not, and it's not challenging the content. It's like, no, no, no. That one person said it wasn't that bad. And, you know, like, well, you've done this before. And, you know, like, it's not challenging the content. It's just like, ah, the, I am hearing a sound in my own head that's telling me this is going badly. That's right. It's thought as thought. Yeah. Thought as thought. That's the classic contrast between MBCT and cognitive therapy, right? But there's a lot of overlap, right, with between mindfulness-based approaches and cognitive therapy. We are being invited into a system of beliefs. Dukkha can be redeemed. Yeah. Goodness has a kind of force to it. The potency of awareness. We, we could go on. There are like many things that we're invited into, ways in which we're reframing experience. We're reframing pleasant and unpleasant. We're thinking about our life in dramatically different ways. And over the course of a, of a Dharma practice, we come to construe the entirety of our life in light of the Dharma. Yeah. Like how we understand our own suffering and our own longings and our own goodness is like in light of these teachings. And, um, I think that the, the, the benefits early in practice, the benefits that we see in these short treatment intervention studies, they, those benefits are largely cognitive benefits, I feel. Yeah, I was alluding to this earlier, that the idea that like, like that we're, we're really deepening into and getting a, like profound attentional samadhi-ish benefits of practice at week eight is not tenable. Some people are gifted that way. I certainly was not. Many people are not. Many people that has to mature over much longer spans of time. And yet you see kind of like robust demonstration of benefits of these short interventions what accounts for that? I think it is a lot of it is like the destigmatization of dukkha, you know, the way in which we start to feel unashamed of our pain, the normalization of the intensity of the human condition. These are of profound benefit and many others, you know. Many others, ways we're being invited in to reappraise our distress, reappraise our psychiatric symptoms. And so the secular distinction that, that it's a technique, you know, mindfulness is a technique, not a, 
a religion or something is that not really viable. We really cannot separate the view from the technique. There, in other words, there's no viewless technique, right? There's always something being implied. Even if you just say, pay attention to your breath, there's a whole elaborate kind of edifice of, of, of ideas underlying that, that are artic- articulated in even rigorously secular interventions. Yeah. Mindfulness as a cognitive therapy, mindfulness as exposure therapy. So exposure therapy is a kind of key mechanism in a range of different therapeutic approaches. It's not just, you know, the exposure therapy in the narrowest sense of it, um, the way, you know, exposure therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder has been evaluated empirically. It's like most every therapeutic approach relies on mechanisms of exposure. Yeah. So what is this? Some good proportion of our distress is maintained by experiential avoidance, experiential avoidance, the unwillingness to be, to encounter, to be present for private events and efforts to um, take steps to alter the form or frequency of those events and the context that occasion them. So this is very prominent in anxiety where it's like our avoidance of the feared object eventually starts to like narrow our life. And we, it starts to feel claustrophobic. Yeah. And, uh, and anxiety like thrives on some measure of avoidance. Yeah. And um, this is um, Michelle Krask, um, uh, sort of major, you know, exposure therapy person, researcher. She says, uh, we argue for moving away from immediate fear reduction and towards fear toleration as the primary goal of exposure therapy. Um, fear toleration. Yeah, does that sound familiar? I like patience, yeah, the parami of patience, of equanimity, of allowing, of approaching. Yeah. Now, in the therapeutic realm, there is usually an attempt at systematic systematic desensitization, meaning you sort of like, okay, you know, in very simple kind of case, like somebody gets into a car accident and has, um, you know, is afraid to drive, you know, has has post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, okay, well, the first step might be drawing a car, you know, and then, uh, then it might be uh, sitting in a car or something like this and not moving. Then it might be going for a ride in a parking lot, right? And each time, you know, like becoming desensitized, you know, draining some of the affective charge, from that, mastering that level of learning, you know, 
And then graduation is being able to drive on the highway at rush hour or something like that. That's, that's success, right? And so we say it's systematic, systematic exposure therapy in uh, the Dharma world in mindfulness practice. It's unsystematic exposure therapy. Yeah. Everything, anything that can disrupt your peace will. Yeah. That's, uh, the bad news and the good news, actually. Like we don't, yeah, I joke, like we don't say that on the flyers. Insight retreat, anything that can disrupt your peace will. Please join us, you know. But that's real. That is what it is. You sit enough. And it, in a way, it's our good fortune that our pain rearises that our clinging rearises that our greed and our hate and our delusion rearises anything that can disrupt our peace will we sit enough we practice enough it will and sometimes we get too big a dose of pain in our practice not often but sometimes we do And the idea in exposure therapy is to get the right doses of pain, the right level of subjective distress. Too little, we don't learn. Too much, we're flooded. We don't learn. So we play at the edge of our own threshold and own tolerance. And and in our Dharma practice too, we are really becoming habituated. We are desensitizing to the impelling forces of clinging. This is the purification side of practice. We call it the path of purification. What is that? In clinical language, that is exposure therapy for everything. Yeah. And um, this is, to my mind, like uh, one of the most powerful dimensions, uh, mechanisms of action of the Dharma, how it actually functions to reduce distress. And we don't see this necessarily. A lot of the fruit of Dharma practice, we don't see. We don't see ourselves the moment something lets go. We don't see the habituation in a very, you know, explicit way. We just wake up someday and recognize like, oh, I don't suffer in that way anymore. And I don't know where it went or when it went, but I feel different and I feel freer. And that's of profound value. So Dharma practice this, uh, is this approach orientation and um, approaching that which might be avoided. Um, and 
the fact that we're training our attention, that we're training in love, makes the approach especially deep. Yeah. So it's like, how, how, how do I get close to my avoidance? How do I get close to it? How do I uh, approach the loops of pain in me? Well, if I'm not a practitioner, I can kind of be guided by some therapeutic, you know, a therapist or something. The Dharma helps us get really close. We're like pouring the awareness into the circuits of avoidance, into the the patterns of, um, you know, entanglement. And we're just like really getting like close. Yeah. This is part of how the, those loops of pain lose, become desensitized. We get really close. We move against the tide of avoidance into approach and, and love, care, willingness, surrender, this is the deepest form of approach. So this is um, one side of practice. This is the exposure therapy side. We also have the tranquilizing side, which is meant to make the exposure side bearable. Yeah. Without, and it begins in clinical situations, people get anxiety reducing strategies before they begin some of the exposure stuff. Okay, I can, uh, I can do diaphragmatic breathing. I can do progressive muscle relaxation. I can do different things that like I can meditate. This is soothing. This is soothing. Yeah. Um, Dharma practice is a kind of dialectic between the tranquility and the exposure dimensions of our practice. And um, um, there is sometimes a risk, I don't see that often, but there is a risk that one just gets wedded to the tranquilizing side of practice and uses that, that is enlisted as a mechanism of avoidance itself. Yeah. Right, where it's like I'm gonna, and some people have natural predilections towards quiet and samadhi and this kind of thing, and that's usually great and leveraged for growth. But sometimes, sometimes, if it's not the practice is not understood, that's just a place to hang out in avoidance, basically. And the encounter with our own dukkha is not made, and people can practice actually for a long time. And some of their core, there's benefit from just hanging out in tranquility, but some of the core behavioral patterns, speech patterns are untransformed because the practice has been enlisted as a tool in avoidance. So this is a risk just to, to flag. If we're sincere, we wise up sooner or later. The Dharma has elements of an existential therapy. Yeah. So um, existential therapy, I don't know much about it, but um, associate a lot with Yalom. Um, and 
uh, it hypothesizes that the, the failure to meet existential questions, challenges of any human life, the failure to meet those challenges adequately leads to symptoms. And so death, responsibility, our solitude, we're connected in a million ways and we are alone, you know, alone, born, die, live alone in a very important ways. And the failure to actually meet those existential questions, challenges, um, is, is, you know, in the, according to this, like a, a source of symptomatology of psychiatric symptoms. The Dharma, of course, like began the, right in the, the mythology of it all, like the aging sickness, like death, like this was, if that is true, if that is true, if it is true that everything will be lost, what is to be done? That is the animating question of Dharma. You know? And indeed, we do find the practice is relevant for this. The practice is relevant for this in a million different ways, I feel. But concretely, um, there is evidence that meditation, Buddhism, you know, um, reduces our defensive responses to thoughts of death, for example, to what you call mortality salience. So if you sort of like make mortality salient in the mind of a research um, subject participant, um, things happen, things happen, a number of which are not good. They become more territorial, more in-group favoritism, more rigid and ideology. Um, it has effects, it seems. Yeah, and, um, and you can see, I think it cuts both ways. Sometimes mortality salience actually can make us love. It's like groundlessness can make us hate or it can make us love. And um, we're training such that it makes us, you know, it leads us into love, but it often does not. And you see the way fear in our politics is mobilized uh, to manipulate people's behavior um, is very profound. It's a profound lever that can be used. And because we're so unconscious and we're so easily manipulated uh, it's just used again and again right so we actually have to know our inner life in order to make those levers less accessible to the manipulation of uh, profoundly diluted powers you know so we wake up to some of this we come into you know come into relationship with our own mortality and um yeah this is from one one study from some of this is in the the called terror management theory you know kind of research literature terror not not in terms of terrorism but but um fear deep fear 
And um, so a couple of researchers, according to these study, uh, three studies um, conducted in two countries with participants with varying levels of meditation experience, defensive responses to reminders of death that were consistently found in the absence of meditation were not found after meditation. Present findings are consistent with previous research showing that higher levels of dispositional mindfulness, kind of trait mindfulness, higher levels of trait mindfulness are associated with lower levels of defensiveness in response to mortality salience. The present findings suggest that responding defensively to thoughts of death by initially suppressing such thoughts and then defending one's worldview when they rebound is not an inevitable response to this existential problem. Not an inevitable response to this existential problem. The notion being that we cling to our ideology and our view as a form of symbolic immortality. Yeah. Yeah, I may die, but I'm an American. I'm a Buddhist. I'm a Philadelphia. Yeah, and so I have this lineage, right? I have this lineage. I remember Frank Zappa saying something when he was dying, something like uh, legacy is just like another egomaniacal trip. Yeah. And... um and so, yeah, maybe we 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 kind of we cling to uh, we cling to you know whatever this kind of sense of what what lasts beyond us, and that's not you know that's that's not such a bad thing. We want to just be conscious of how we construe this and not use that as a defense against the truth of our existential condition it is possible to be softened rather than hardened by groundlessness. It is possible for our hearts to be softened rather than hardened by uh, a Nietzsche, uh, by uncertainty. So uh, mindfulness, Dharma, dirty drug, many different mechanisms, operates in many ways. And as teachers, we, we often highlight some mechanisms rather than others. And in a way, the most kind of um, probably the most, you know, some of the most popular teachers, popular approaches zone in on one mechanism. You know, it gets, they kind of boils it down to something simpler. And there's rhetorical force in that. You know, this is the, you just march to the beat of this drum. That is your practice. There's power in that. And naivete also to my mind. This is a, this is a, this works in so many different ways. And what that means is we're going to have to talk about it in a range of different ways, which sometimes sound paradoxical or contradictory, but it's like, no, this is a dirty drug that acts in a lot of, through a lot of different mechanisms. Yeah. 
And so you wind up, you know, having to articulate the path in more, more nuanced ways. Sometimes it's like, yeah, skillful means, skillful means. So um, let me see. Okay, let me do another another piece. Um, yeah, are you are you doing okay? Make a make a sad face if you're uh, frustrated and. Uh, Okay. Okay. Um, so, so another, just another piece, then we'll pivot somehow. So, um, my sense is that the the interest in mindfulness, um, the interest in mindfulness in the therapeutic world is less about. Um, the strength of the clinical trials evidence or the neuroscience stuff and more um, about how mindfulness describes a state that is nearly diametrically opposed to psychiatric distress. Yeah. A moment of mindfulness is like so very, very different from a moment of distress. So how is this so? Yeah. Well, suffering comes in so many different forms and um, so many different causes. But if we look at the, the, the phenomenology of distress, what, what are some of the characteristics of distress? If I were to characterize it, I would say a few things. This echoes some of what we've talked about. So thoughts, thoughts become absorbing and imposing. They feel really real. As real as a piece of furniture, you know. Rumination is a transdiagnostic risk factor, you know, so the absorption in thought, this kind of mode of obsessional, uh, kind of very sort of abstract, you know, it, it sort of masquerades as existential questions. How did I get here? How, where am I going? But it's, it's really like, um, this is a risk factor. Rumination is not good for our mental health. And in rumination, thoughts have like a density and a real, you know, like a weightiness that is really prominent. In distress, the kind of space of experience narrows. It's like a sense of, I often talk about it as a kind of claustrophobia, you know, and, and there is, you know, Experimental evidence, like the attentional field narrows in distress. We, we like start to like literally see like the peripheral vision narrows, you know, 
the sense of space, right? We know those moments of like the big sky meditation or something like that, or the expansive flavors of awareness that is like utterly missing in moments of distress, right? Have we ever been in a kind of like the, the, the experience of like the, the vast expansiveness of, of awareness and been deeply distressed. Yeah. Not really, not really. There's some exceptions to that maybe, but not much. Yeah. The space of experience narrows in distress. The attention becomes fragmented as I was alluding to it's pinging all over in distress. There are alterations in um, physiological arousal, you know, Sometimes hypo, you know, kind of flat, flattened out, numbed out, dissociative kind of, but often hyper arousal. There's experiential avoidance. Uh, there are compromises in distress tolerance. A moment of distress is like we're, we're often in deep contention. We're fighting with ourselves, And the pain is is um is personalized it's a commentary on our being it's a commentary it is a kind of moral failing dukkha is my own moral failing my depression is my own moral failing it speaks to the defectiveness of some level of my own being in distress there is a kind of um Un, un, uh, unhelpful rigidity in our predictive models, the kind of we are not as responsive, not optimally responsive to new information. We fail to learn and to revise our models of self, of world, of future. Yeah, there's a kind of um, rigidity in, in, in this and, you know, in our beliefs, in our schemas, this kind of thing. And uh, a, a special kind of rigidity in our model of self. Yeah, the model of our self is like impervious to disconfirming information. This is who I am. These are my problems. You know, and it's like, you know, our re it's very, our reasoning becomes motivated reasoning where we're erring on the side of confirming our existing models rather than opening to not knowing, opening to new data, opening to um, new, uh, new, new ways of, of understanding. These are, we could name more. These are just kind of from my own thinking like this. These are, these are characteristics. These are some of the, the key characteristics of moments of distress. Yeah. Okay. What is mindfulness? What is mindfulness, right? It moves us almost directly against each of the things I just enumerated. Yeah. 
there is a reduction in experiential fusion. Yeah, cognitive fusion, which is just the way that that some researchers talk about establishing mindfulness, establishing some metacognitive awareness. We're not fused with the content of thought. We say identified, you know, oh, we get identified with thought, you know. And identified with thought means that we are not aware of thought as thought. We are living in the bubble of that thought. And whether that, that train of thought is taking us to heaven or hell, we are going. Yeah? We are going. We are nothing but habit energy. Yeah? And that's why it's like the sense of waking up from the daydream back to the breathing or something. It's like, we didn't know we were meditating. We didn't know we were human. We didn't know where we were. We were living in the content of that discursive thought. And um, mindfulness is breaks this identification, breaks this identification. It is a process of de, the language they use, de-reification. Yeah, maybe we would say appreciating the the uh, anicca dukkha nata quality of thought itself. So thoughts that had been really real, really imposing. I am a bad, you know, whatever. Like all of a sudden, that becomes just another empty phenomena, barely even there. Right there's the the uh, famous um, well famous in very small circles but famous story of Joseph Goldstein you know with a yogi I think on a three month retreat who um, who came in just in like a kind of spasm of self hatred and um, and as I recall the story she is just like you know. Uh, um, you know, this is wrong with me and that's wrong with me. And, you know, even the chipmunks hate me, you know. And um, and Joseph's response was, uh, even the chipmunks hate me and the sky is blue. Yeah. Okay, what does that mean? Even the chipmunks hate me and the sky is blue. The sky is blue. Both thoughts made of precisely the same stuff. Yeah. The chipmunks, even the chipmunks hate me. The sky is blue. And so it's like juxtaposing the most innocent, obvious, uncharged statement, the sky is blue, with the most charged spasm of self-hatred their currency is identical uh, empty de-reification mindfulness is um, conjoined with equanimity 
you know, in many of the scientific descriptions of, of mindfulness, equanimity is, is one of the facets. It's present moment awareness and equanimity. Mindfulness is both. And we know that if we're, if we, the energy follows the attention, if we attend to something, if we start really noticing without equanimity, the attention will amplify that for better or worse, right? So we all know those moments in meditation or in retreat. We're noticing everything and we're hating everything, yeah? There's a lot of present moment awareness. We're noticing phenomena at a good clip, but there's zero equanimity. And that is a very, very uh, dukkha-filled state. Equanimity is a kind of component of the blessing of mindfulness. And equanimity is many things, but it's the practice of distress tolerance. In distress, in moments of pain, there are compromises yeah, in this tolerance. In mindfulness, equanimity is, is the practice of distress tolerance. We are approaching that which is avoided. We are exercising all of these exposure-based learning mechanisms. And we are um, learning, as uh, Shinzen Young said, like not to fight with ourselves at any level. What would that be to not fight with ourselves at any level? to turn no experience into an enemy. Um, A hallmark of mindfulness is the attentional stability. I alluded to this, I won't say much about it, but like there are regulatory benefits of a malleable attention, of an attention that can stay here and not be so fractured. A moment of mindfulness is almost by definition a non-moralistic moment. Yeah? Right? It's like we're draining the moralism from our emotional life. We're draining the moralism from it. Yeah? This means that about me. This sadness. This loneliness. This isolation. This whatever, you know. Okay, we make it mean so much, and mindfulness like cuts through all of it. It, you know, doesn't mean we go from everything means everything to um, uh, an appreciation of nature. You know, you know, just like. No, causes and conditions, a million causes and conditions. I am not angry or sad or lonely or this or that because of my fault. I am, I am sad because of everything ever, you know. That's paticca samupada. And there is zero room for moralism in it. So much of what we do in Dharma is destigmatizing pain. And a lot of blessing comes from that.
this is a, a, a hypo, hypo in the, you know, hypo egoic state, a moment of mindfulness is the not a, a reified sense of self. Um, we, we are uh, training not to take refuge in ideas of who we are. Uh, we're, we're training not to look for our redemption in landing in some identity. Uh, we can acknowledge all of the forces of conditioning, this, that, um, all of that. And we, we sort of give up hope of arriving in a sense of adulthood, you know, like arriving in the sense of like, oh yeah, now I'm grown up. Now this is who I am. Taking refuge in, um, yeah, notions of, of who, what I am. The, the practice is a way of, um, of deconstructing the sense of self and uh, the practice is a way of, of accessing different states of awareness where self is much less prominent or very thinned out or very expansive or very impersonal or lots of different ways this works. Um, but um, what becomes, you know, the, the kind of fruit, the culmination of all of that stuff is it is no longer tenable to say, I am a bad person. I am a failure. It's like that language doesn't even make sense in the same way. And the, the layer of uh, the way, the kind of underbelly of self is shame. The underbelly of Sakyaditi is shame. And to take, to claim the territory of I amness, you know, um, is to make very fertile ground for shame. And so we start to mm, sense of self becomes more porous, more fluid, flexible, attenuated, open, empty. And um, in some ways you could say it, the ego is becoming healthier, you know, and then we just like keep going. We keep going. We keep you know, saying yes to the arising of, of, of self-experience, we keep going, gets more and more spacious, more and less and less charged with clinging, less and less defensive. You know. So much of this happens not by doing therapy on ourselves, but just practicing and we encounter the pain of self-identification. We encounter the pain of it. There is pleasure in it sometimes, but it's the pleasure of cotton candy. You know, it's the pleasure of cotton candy. 
Like, don't eat much of that. And you taste it, and then it's gone. Like, what? Where? Where did that go? And then maybe we're just craving more. We just become less enchanted, you know, by that kind of endless shell game of the egoic charade. And uh, we're never going to become what we think we are. And we're never going to land in a, in a self that feels like home. Yeah, we come to know this come to know this and that changes our goals and what we spend time doing and it changes who we are in relation to others who we are in relation to ourselves a moment of mindfulness is diametrically opposed to the kind of many of the hallmarks of uh, distress and so how could, you know, clinicians and mental health professionals not be at least curious? You know, what has the Buddha articulated here? Moment of mindfulness. Yeah. This is mindfulness in its multifaceted presentation. You know, we can define it. It's present time awareness and equanimity or something like this is this is really what it is this is you know i think in some uh, uh, some kind of visions of abhidhamma is like no mindfulness is almost tantamount to like freedom you know like it's free of defilements yeah so this this to my mind is 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 a kind of key of why there's so much interest in the mental health world in in this construct and um, yeah. so we have been uh, sitting for a while so let's just take a short short uh, let's say come back at 10 10 past just um, stretch or use the bathroom, come back in eight minutes and um, finish, finish out together. So, okay. Thank you for your, uh, your attention. I'll, uh, I'll see you. See you in a few. Okay. Um, so I think um, I've got a, a bunch of great questions and reflections in the chat. And um, um, I think rather than moving forward with uh, um, other, other things, want to open it, open it up for, for questions and dialogue and um, um, question about getting a transcript of this. I, I think, I think we, I think that's available. That should be available. Yeah. Um, so um let's uh yeah yeah if you um wish to uh put your voice in the room for question um please uh please do okay 
Yeah, Lori. Hi, Matthew. <clears throat> Thank you for that mind-expanding morning, as usual. Um, what's coming to mind is the difference between, um, well, two things, between start being with the Dharma for therapeutic value or relaxation or learning value and being with <clears throat> other types of therapy. I, I've never had cognitive behavioral therapy, but I have had Jungian therapy and <clears throat> certainly have been to doctors. And in that case, there's an interaction between myself and the medicine or the doctor, or the, there's a, there's a constant of another person. Whereas Dharma, Dharma practice is pretty self-regulating, I think, most of the time. I mean, we do have the, the Sangha, if we're lucky, and a teacher, if we're lucky, and we have the Buddha. But, but we're sitting there for long periods of time just talking to ourselves. And so that, that interaction, for me at least, has the potential and the danger of becoming delusional and lazy. And, and I can just sit there and like you said, just, you know, feel very relaxed, but I'm not going to learn anything and I'm not going to confront myself about anything. So that is one part of it. And the other part is that in the East, I think having Buddhism and meditation, maybe just Buddhism as a cultural, um, ubiquitous cultural phenomenon, everybody talks about it and or at least everyone knows about the, has the common cultural understanding of the Dharma, has the common cultural understanding of the inner world, the inner life and interacting with the outer life. We don't have that so much here. We're pretty, I think we're pretty outer. We don't, you know, and so we don't have that cultural everyday understanding that other people in our environment have the same practice that we do are going through the same you know, studies that we're doing. So I wonder if you have any comment on that and how to, in the West, um, not become deluded and too lazy. Yeah, I, well, I, I feel like um, every, every practice, every teaching can be used or misused. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. it can be, you know, a lot of what we're, talking about, you know, sort of like the misuse of meditation, of mindfulness as a way of uh, actually recapitulating greed, hate, and delusion. That is possible. It is possible to do that. It is possible to kind of rationalize um, our own uh, defilements and act them out, you know, in the name of the the Dharma or something. Mm -hmm. What stops us from doing that is two things, our own sincerity and other people, the mirror of other people, you know, um, and, um, and so we, this path is, is, you know, uh, investigation, investigation, it is, um, we have to get like really curious in how our practice is functioning potentially to reinforce our own greed and delusion. You know, that's like, cause it's not like we just 
we just practice um, meditation and we sort of check our habits at the door. No, the way we practice is the way we do everything else. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's going to practice is going to be sort of recruited as a way of um, insulating ourselves, you know, and I think, yeah, teachers are, you know, and Sangha is good at, at helping support us detect that. And, but we're, but it really is kind of our own sincerity that is vital, you know, and um, meaning that we are really willing to look at the, are the zones of our own hypocrisy, you know, like the zones of our own, uh, you know, the gap between the, our public and our private self, you know, we're willing to look at like inconsistencies in our own behavior. Yeah. I get to, I get to teach, I hear myself and I have to be like accountable to those words, you know? Right. So I'm like very aware of what I'm saying and then any zones where it's like, oh, that's kind of like do what Matthew says, not how he is in his private life or something. It's like, oh, if you, I feel any of that, that gap, that is unsettling to me. That is unsettling to me. And it's like, okay, I want to rise up, like bring some of my own courage and, you know, like, let me, let me investigate this. And a friend of mine says, if we want to know, we will. And if we don't, we won't, you know? And so it's like, are we committed to just, and some of this is tied into the self too, because if I feel like my discoveries are the deepest commentary on who I am, then as Mark Twain says, not all self-knowledge is good news. You know, it's like, if we feel that way, it short circuits the investigation, right? And so, yeah. no, it's like, I just want to see, and it's going to be ugly in there. It's going to cause at least some shudders of shame and whatever, something. And it's like, and I want to see it. Yeah, because it is of the nature of not self, you know? And so we get bolder with this. and And some forms of pain and all of that it's like it, i don't know it runs deep and we can never be totally sure you know it's mm -hmm. like it is i have had the thought like maybe i have just like incarnated into this whole world of buddhism and dharma and now i teach it and i live that life and maybe this is just like the path of least resistance for my own weird habits and style and my shyness and you know all these different things like maybe you know so okay i just welcome that thought hmm. yeah. let me see let me see yeah and we delusion is endless it's endless we can never stop asking if we're deluded <laughs> because delusion until it feels like delusion it feels like the truth and so we've habituated to our own, our own confusion. And that is part of why we need others because we will never have a 360 view of ourselves. But there are some people that have us down, you know, like that, they can see something. 
And it's like, Matthew, you're, this is neurotic, you know, or this is whatever, you know? And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to be able to see that myself, though. I want to be able to see that on the cushion, say, what you're thinking now is just nuts. You got, you know, not that it's nuts, but it's, it's, you know, don't do that. I get it. I get it. I think, I think it, for in my experience, it comes more in the, the discontinuities between what, you know, our values um, and our behavior, you know, that's where we yeah. really want to get interested. And, and I don't think we can see it all. We do count on others. So. Those yeah. difficult people. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Chris, please. Um, let's see, can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. Okay, great. Matthew, thanks so much. Um, I'm going to step up, use what Ram said. I see your name and you're presenting something and it's like, I'm in Greece. It's 300 BC. I'm at the Stoa and Matthew's talking today. Let's go ahead over there because he's going to get me worked up and thinking about all sorts of stuff. Um, you've already given me two things to think about right at the beginning, a down payment on my continued existence and Something about Buddha speaking to my ear. Um, I've worked as a nurse for over 30 years now, and a big part of that, portion of that, was working with homeless, the street dwellers you see in the streets of downtown San Francisco speaking to themselves. And if there's one thing I've been able to sort of bring as far as a Dharma practice, just to a quick remedy, is getting the old hand. When they come to triage and they're babbling to themselves, or my sister's babbling to herself, or I'm babbling to myself to take that old hand and put it in the center of the chest and just sort of breathe. And I'm getting sort of reminded by that. Um, I spent the whole week when Thich Nhat Hanh died watching the ceremonies surrounding him and being sort of reintroduced to his sort of simple practices, really, and spending a lot of time on the Plum Village website looking at stuff. And he continually talks about those painful moments that we feel, those ruminations, that that dukkha that's hitting you really hard where you can't even think straight. And he just talks about bringing center, take to your breath, the refuge, which is centered in your body and just breathing and taking that step forward and moving. So I'm continuing to use that and it it works well. It's a quick fix. There's a lot of mindfulness there. Um, There's a lot of parasympathetic stimulation certainly too. And I don't know what I'm yapping about right now, but I'm, Thank you again for your uh, for your presentation this morning. You've given me a lot to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, thanks, Chris. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. On the one hand, it's it's simple, simple or gimmick or something like that, but it's it's actually not because I can hear the way you're talking about it and describing it. I can feel your practice in it, and I can feel that it's not it's not a gimmick actually like it's tied into a whole raft of kind of wisdom and compassion in you. And so that's not trivial for you to say that to the homeless person with schizophrenia or something like that. You know, it's like uh, I could just, I got, I got the hit of it, you know, just hearing it, you know, I could get the hit of it myself and feel it in my own heart. Yeah. And that's animated by your own practice. And, and uh, I was, yeah. I was going to add something to you offered out that continued rumination for all of us about, am I just taking cherry picking the good parts of Buddhism and mm. 
you know, taking it in and where's my guilt related to that sort of, mm-hmm. you know, um, Buddhism was happening for four or 500 years. And then it's in India. Mahayana was starting to be created. The Chinese came down. Kumara Jiva, I think, was the one that translated into Chinese. The Chinese already had their own philosophical systems with uh, the Taoist systems, the Confucian systems that started. So they had the words, but it was their own words, similar to our own therapeutic history with Maslow and stuff, that we could take these beautiful practices and allow them to still, which were just trickles at the beginning that Jack and Joseph brought in through the Peace Corps, actually, going there. The Peace Corps, they kind of brought that in. Now there's just huge streams of this wandering around. Some of it's sort of simplistic. Others just extremely beautiful. So I'm just going to add that out. So I think that's happening now in the West. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Great. Um, Diane, please. Matthew, thank you. I was wondering if you could comment briefly. Um, you said something about renunciation and um, uh, sila as being two different um, approaches to sort of scientific Buddhism, the MBSR, I think, and then the more monastic. And um, I find with the Dharma, a lot of the translations are lost on me. Um, and I find an understanding either um, with people like you or, for example, I've never understood what Chita was, but I, the closest I've come is similar to what um, Dr. Porges does with the polyvagal theory and ventral or um, yeah, ventral vagus regulation. Um, another example of this is the Brahma Viharas going on retreats for those sends me straight to hell. Um, because I really have trouble with near and far enemies. I have no idea what to do with that. And then one day I heard Orrin J. Sofer describe the Brahma Viharas as being there to protect me. And just that phrase turned me 180 degrees. So renunciation is something I've not touched because I don't understand it. And I heard you once give a definition of wisdom that I keep with me always. So I just I'm, what did I what did I say? Do you remember what I said? I'm always afraid when people quote me back. I'm oh, like, oh my no, god, no. what did I say? No, what no. what did I? Because <laughs> no, I no. may be embarrassed by it, but yeah. No, it was it was beautiful. It it you you it's like a gift with two beautiful handles on it. You said, and this is my interpretation or my take on it. You said acts or thoughts or words of wisdom you know that they're wise when they set people free when they create liberation and so that's now my guide am i you know am i am i right or am i free am i sending out you know rightness and wrongness or am i creating freedom for everybody got it so um so just briefly, and then I'll take, take the last one and, and close. So, um, um, yeah, so one principle is just like, we, we got to have like working definitions of things, yes. but don't get too caught up, you know, because anybody who wants to define mind is like incredibly like guilty of grandiose thinking. You know, it's like anybody who wants to define uh, chitta or something in some like c- 
ending the conversation there. It's like, no, no, no. It's like, this is like, we kind of get, get us a sense of it, but it's like, um, you well, know, we, we work our way into deeper understandings of exactly. it and, and they become more nuanced. And so, yeah, we have to define mindfulness to start a practice kind of, but it, it is like, no, to understand what mindfulness is, is the fruition of practice, not the beginning point. Yes. And what I was alluding to with renunciation and sila, renunciation is, you know, is the, the sense of renunciation is underemphasized in a lot of the secular articulations of practice. And it's at the heart of the Buddhist lineage. The Buddha was a monk, as, as has been noted, you know, and, um, and so, um, yeah, we, we just in differentiating some of the secular approaches from the Buddhist approaches, um, uh, the, what Sila is shared, you know, ethics are shared across that line of difference, but a lot of times renunciation is, is minimized in the secular realm. And so it's a little like, yeah, we're grafting in mindfulness to my existing life. And that is not the real gesture of the Dharma heart. So. Okay. Oh, I gotta, gotta stop. But um, uh, last one row. Yeah, please. So I wanted to just pose one, one framework of thinking about this intersection with the Dharma and the mental health profession, which is, is there ways by holding them both together that one might be able to help in arenas in which one or the other may be lacking on their own. And in the mental health profession, I think that's fairly self-evident. There's a lot of lack. Um, And in the Dharma, the particular area that I'm thinking of is trauma, that um, just briefly in my working through trauma, I often would read a line in the Dharma book saying, this is contraindicated for people who have you know, strong childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. But then I couldn't find very much else Mm -hmm. that um, helped me through that. And I also found problems in the mental health profession in dealing with this. Mm -hmm. But somehow, by having the two, I was able to patch something together that I don't think I would have gotten solely either way. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to throw out that idea and see if you had any thoughts about it. Yeah, 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 thank you. Um, yeah, I appreciate what you're saying. And, um, I do think the, the two traditions can kind of, um, help inform, inform each other. Certainly we're seeing, uh, a kind of more psychotherapeutized Dharma being articulated. Um, um, and, uh, um, I think with some benefits and some, some pros and cons to that, but, but certainly some important benefits. And then, yeah, Dharma can feed into mental health. And I I didn't get into anything, you know, there are whole dimensions of, of the Dharma as being supporting the welfare of, of, um, of the mental health clinicians, of supporting the general clinical skills of, 
of mental health clinicians of deepening their their kind of the interventions that they might deliver and so lots of lots of cross fertilization and um and I'm glad to hear that um you found your own way and with with uh you know sort of grafting together the different approaches and I do feel like in the realm of trauma there's um um I'm very enthusiastic about the potential of the the practice dharma practice around that that's not um um yeah i think i think um we don't want to underestimate our pain nor do we want to underestimate our resilience and the capacity of our own heart and especially in the as so far in so far as the the discourses around trauma so um Anyway, we're we're over time. Thank you for your uh, your understanding there, and um, thank you, uh, thank you, Rob, for uh, having me and uh, Tsati Center, and for your your attention, everyone. Uh, it's nice to uh, mix it up around all of this. And um, uh, if I um, trespassed in any way on your heart during this morning i ask your understanding you know i we normally do ask forgiveness at the end of a retreat or something like that and um and um and in talking about these themes it's it's not it's not unskillfulness is maybe inevitable yeah and so um so to the extent that i have been unskillful in any way ask your your understanding and um yeah we'll see you uh see you on the the uh the dharma trail somewhere okay okay thanks everyone